I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Hello and Happy New Year. This is Bill Bupert with Chasing Ghosts in a Regular Warfare podcast. This will be episode 33, title of which is Excursions, Salvo Competition, and the Big Fight. Welcome to 2024. And we still don't have moon bases. I'm very disappointed. Nonetheless, an explanatory note. Why am I calling this excursions? Well, what I've discovered, this being the 33rd episode of this podcast, which comes out on, on I hope, a pretty regular fortnightly rhythm for my listeners, is I found that in the Irregular Warfare rubric, under the umbrella in which we've tackled subjects both historically and contemporary, that deal with terrorism, counterterrorism, guerrilla warfare, unconventional warfare, special operations forces, all of those things that aren't quite conventional, all of those things that aren't quite the big war fight that so many military historians, to include myself, find so eternally fascinating. But I find that as we move into these rather interesting years that we're, we're experiencing, these interesting times that we're living in, There are some things out there in the public square that aren't explained to the extent and depth that I would care for them to be. So that's why I'm taking today to introduce you to a new occasional series on here called Excursion. So whenever you tune into my podcast, and again, thank you to all the listeners who do so, and thank you especially to those listeners who continue not only to partake of, of what I put out, but also to have the kind commentary and questions and correspondence that I've experienced at cgpodcast.pm.me. That is cgpodcast.pm.me. So uh, thanks for that. But the reason we're doing this is because I need to expand upon some things that aren't necessarily within the rubric of a regular warfare but are important on a contextual and historical basis to further suss out and tease out why things happen in warfare the way that I do. A gentle reminder that warfare is probably the most significant and complex and chaotic clash between complex adaptive systems, two or more. Maybe it's going to be more because of allies and coalitions and forces, much like we saw during the Napoleonic Wars, where you had forces marshalling against the French that tended to be international in their nature, international coalitions, alliances. Of course, we can see this for thousands of years throughout martial conflicts on planet Earth, where this very thing would occur. I have become rather alarmed of late at not only the temper of the world, but I guess the temperature of the world as far as not heating up in a global warming fashion, and that's for a future episode. But heating up as far as warfare is concerned, I have mentioned in a past podcast that prior to October 7th, when one looked at 
the map of the world in 2023, something very startling and alarming was occurring, and that was from the western edges of Mali in Africa. We traveled all the way to the India-Pakistan border, and we discovered that there was a band of civil war conflict and strife and just warfare that was going on, with the exception of Egypt. That all changed on October 7th with the Gaza incursion by Hamas into Israel proper, and now what we're seeing in the past almost three months, isn't it, of uh, warfare that has gone on, and things have not gone well, and now Egypt is in the fray. So we have this solid band of conflict from that western border in that African country all the way to the India-Pakistan border on the Eurasian continent. I'm not only alarmed because of how much of the world is on fire and embroiled in this kind of what one could call, in, in, in uh, quotation marks, low-intensity conflict, even though it isn't very low-intensity for all the actors and civilians adjacent and nearby to the fighting that's occurring. But there may be a big war in the offing on the horizon. There may be a near-peer and peer conflict. Those terms mean that a near-peer conflict is somebody who taking the U.S. as the fulcrum upon which we're going to conduct our examination in the NATO nations, would be one that can field forces similar to what these first world nations that I just mentioned have. Uh, peer nations would be ones like Russia and China, and India is an aspirant, who one could consider, with certain exceptions, such as a nuclear submarine fleet, to be peers to the United States and parts of the West. Kurt Schlichter. A commentator that I really enjoy has this chilling thing to observe upon, which I paraphrase. And he says that since the end of World War II and up until this point, humanity, planet-wide, has lived in a relatively peaceful era in which we don't know war on a large scale. And Schlichter's observation is, and I happen to agree with this, is that this is the exception to the rule in human history going back thousands of years. We are so blessed and fortunate to be in this period of time, which, by the way, may be coming to a close, in which we aren't actively involved in warfare on a global or regional basis that consumes the home front also. Now, because of the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, and despite the warlike and war-making history of the United States, for the most part, it has been isolated with the exceptions of civil wars that have occurred on American soil to be isolated from these, where, where the cities and our towns and our villages and everything like that are not subject to warfare. It's not like the 30 years war that racked Europe in the um, the, just after the Middle Ages. It isn't like any of that. We've never experienced that kind of thing. I'm afraid that that may come to an end, whether it is civil war here in the United States or warfare that starts to be played out in one part of the world, starts to consume the remainder of the world. For instance, riffing off of what I was just talking about with the Napoleonic Wars, when the Napoleonic Wars ended honor about 1814 to 16, depending on where it was settled, on what part of the planet, because essentially, from a Western perspective, it was a European world war at that time. From 1815, extraordinarily enough, until 1914, the world 
was racked by war, but it was not racked by a world war. What we have in 1914 to 1918, and then that unpleasant interregnum between 1914 and 1932, when the Japanese invaded China and set all the pieces in place for the massive Pacific War that would unleash itself. And then, of course, the following year when Hitler takes power as a result of the very heavy-handed and sloppy handling of the denouement of World War I. There we have World War II. Neil Ferguson goes so far as to call the World War 1914 to 1945. I think there's things to be said for that. I would suggest to you that the war didn't end in 1945 because while we saw many colonial conflicts take place during the 19th century that I just mentioned, almost all of those conflicts after 1815 were colonial conflicts either between European powers or singular or allied European powers against indigenous forces on the Indian subcontinent, on Africa, South America, and other places like that, where they were consolidating colonial holdings, expanding colonial holdings. Then all of a sudden the world finds itself at war from 1914 to 1945, absolutely consumed in the largest conflagration of conflict in human history. 1945 comes around. There's a cessation of hostilities between all the major powers, but all of a sudden we see, as I have mentioned in previous episodes, All of these colonial holdings, which had taken hundreds of years to wrest from the indigenous populations, to be given to mostly European nations, allies, and cooperatives, start to spin out of control and lose themselves. And of course, by 1948 and 1949, for instance, we find that with the loss of the Indian Raj to the British Empire, the British Empire owns rocks like Pitcairn Island, Ascension, the Falklands. And that is probably the extent of their empire. Of course, we find by 1962, the French have lost their significant North African empire, even though we find that the British, the French, and all of these former colonial powers still dabble, as it were, in these countries and still screw around with their internal politics, conflicts that they have, conflagrations between them, whatever the case may be. These have all been what the Marines when they published their little red book in the 1920s and 30s called The Small Wars Manual, which is basically a nice euphemism for neo-colonial warfare. We're not there anymore. I think that we are at the precipice. We are on the cliff's edge of once again finding ourselves in a world war that may consume us. And mind you, as an amateur historian, I don't have the hubris or arrogance to make predictions, but I do make forecasts. The distinction that I make between predictions and forecasts is that the evidentiary burden on forecasting is less. So here's my forecast, is that in the next five to ten years, America, Europe, China, Russia will be embroiled in a planetary conflict that will go hot between first world nations. And all of it is eminently avoidable. But nonetheless, because of the nature of governance, the nature of governments, the nature of foreign policy that's practiced by the West, and the observation I made earlier, thank you, Kurt Schlichter, on conflict being the way of humanity and this tiny interregnum of peace that we're experiencing right now is coming to an end. That is the reason why I'm doing this particular podcast 
episode in which I'm going to discuss something that's a little bit outside of my normal investigative portfolio of history, contemporary politics that consigns itself simply to irregular warfare, that rubric and that umbrella term and everything underneath it. Because it is so essential, as I discussed in one other episode that was sort of like this when I talked about the big fight, the conventional fight, for us to consider a little part of this because missiles, precision-guided munitions, artillery, air warfare, mud-to-space, airspace coordination, and all of these kind of things are going to come to the fore in the next conflict. Now, mind you, could the next conflict end in nuclear war? Any conflict between first world nations after 1945 in which so many nations have invested themselves with nuclear munitions, the possibility is always there. The probability is always dim, but the possibility is always there, but that is outside the constraints of this particular podcast. I might discuss that in the future. And with that proviso, I would also like to mention that when it comes to intercontinental ballistic missile defense, because we are going to discuss missile defense in this episode, that isn't necessarily on the menu today to discuss ICBMs or probably even IRBMs, which are intermediate-range ballistic missiles. And these ballistic missiles tend to have several stages. And we're mostly talking about munitions that are either extraordinarily inexpensive, extraordinarily old, may not necessarily have the precision guidance systems that you have with the latest generations, but we're seeing them be deployed on battlefields planet-wide everywhere from Yemen to Ukraine and everywhere in between. Before we get started, I wanted to sing Hassanas to one Lester W. Grau. I have mentioned him before. He works at the Foreign Military Studies Office, retired from the U.S. Army as a lieutenant colonel in 1992. He is a Russian speaker, and he is part of the inspiration not only for this particular episode, but I think I may have mentioned an episode or two before where he is an inspiration for this podcast. I mentioned what he did for me in Afghanistan. If you're interested in what that small anecdote was, go ahead and listen to the uh, older podcast. You'll probably be able to dig it out. He is a national treasure. He's such a terrific analyst. And in 2018, he and Charles Bartles wrote something called The Russian Reconnaissance Fire Complex Comes of Age, May 2018. I urge all of my listeners to get a hold of this 18-page PDF. Read it, absorb it, keep it, because this is a key to understanding how the Russians have defeated three entire Ukrainian armies in the space of less than 24 months in the current conflagration that's going on over there in their Near East. Now, I bring up Lester because he's really an exception to the rule among the analysts that I'm exposed to in the government community because he came to my attention in the late 90s with a book that he wrote called The Bear Went Over the Mountain Soviet Combat Tactics in Afghanistan, which he trans... And it was a translation of a study by the Soviet Runes Military Academy. This was published in 1996. The Other Side of the Mountain, Mujahideen Tactics in the Soviet-Afghan War. He co-authored that with Jalili, and that was published in 1998. These two books, here we are, a mere four years before America's entry, its ill-fated entry into Afghanistan. 
And he sort of laid out all the reasons why we shouldn't go in there. Now, he didn't state that explicitly, but he provided all the evidence for the informed reader to look at to say, man, this would be a really bad place for a first world nation to go and fight. Now, he's written a number of other books that I found really good, Operation Anaconda. He's done books on (laughs) one that was really amusing was the Red Army Do-It-Yourself Nazi Bashing Guerrilla Warfare Manual. And that's a lot of fun. That one was published, I think, in 2011. May have been earlier than that. He's written on the Soviet-Afghan War. You'll find, um, they say, 100 articles. I think he's written more than that. FMSO scattered all over the place. I love his incisive commentary. I love his observations. The fact that he is a Russian speaker. And he just brings a level of sobriety and intellectual heft to the discussion that you rarely find in other observers, especially of the contemporary Russian-Ukraine conflict. So, Lester, my hat's off to you. So, salvo, two-syllable word. What the hell does that mean? We all, I think, may be acquainted, especially my my military listeners, with what a salvo is. It's either a one-way or two-way, or possibly three or more-way, exchange of munitions. That's what it tends to be. Now, as a naval, as an amateur navalist of sorts, and someone who has a considerable library, I got out Salvo Classic Naval Gun Actions by Bernard Edwards for me to introduce you to what the concept is of this, because this is not a episode necessarily that is devoted to Navy Salvo action, but I do think that At the core, at the bottom, at the beginning, the very best way for me to describe to you what a salvo competition is, is to describe to you what a salvo is. Now, let's recall that much like fighting sail, in which you had sophisticated sailing machines, probably the most sophisticated engineering technology of their age, fighting sail, which is ships, military ships with sails maneuvering against one another, All of us are probably familiar with the legendary conflict at Trafalgar in which Nelson defeated the French Navy and other such things. Now, when we examine that, much like the crossbow and much like the longbow, we find that as military instrumentalities and modalities, these didn't last very long in the human scale of things. Fighting sail probably saw maybe a 200-year interregnum before it was overwhelmed by the new shipbuilding and technology that occurred after the middle of the 19th century. Because what we have in 1869 with the HMS Captain commissioned by the Royal Navy is the first turreted gun that was on a naval ship. Now, why is a turret important? It's important because... If you don't have a turret, when you are playing three-dimensional chess on the ocean with another, well, maybe a number of naval combatants who have the same technology as you, maneuvering in space and time to get the axis of that gun correct to send and lob those munitions against the ships that you're trying to damage or sink is going to demand that not only do you maneuver the ship, but you have a maneuverability that exceeds the speed of maneuverability of the ship, which the turreted cannon gives us in two dimensions of space. By turning it around 270 degrees, of course, one would want to turn a turret on a ship 360 degrees because you could blow your own superstructure away. 
hence the 270 degrees. And, of course, the axis from lower to upper, wherein one can raise or lower the gun in this rotating turret in the second dimension that these munitions are lobbed in order to get the parabola you need to send it on its not-so-straight course to end up in the ship or near the ship to maim or damage or sink that ship. And remember what I said about these brief interregnums because the supremacy, if one may say that, when it comes to naval gun action came around from the 1870s and ended in World War II. And what I'm speaking to here is gun actions that throw dumb shells, no matter how sophisticated the warhead may be, but they're dumb shells that come out of these ships in order to engage. I wanted to quote from Salvo Classic Naval Gun Actions by Bernard Edwards, and he says, quote, the surface warship with ever-increasing firepower ruled the waves until well into the Second World War, surmounting even the deadly menace of the submarine-launched torpedo. Then, as the year 1941 drew to a close, came the first real indication that the end of many centuries of broadsides and salvos was at hand. On 10 December, the 36,700-ton British battleship Prince of Wales, said to be the finest of her kind afloat, and her consort, the 32,000-ton battlecruiser Repulse, mounted between them six 15-inch, 10 14-inch, 16 5.25-inch, and 24-inch guns were both sunk in less than an hour by Japanese naval aviation. Their big guns were powerless against attack from the air. End of quote. And of course, we see what happens at the Battle of Midway, where you have ships that don't even see each other on the horizon, who launch aircraft against one another and manage to have the most significant naval action of the war, which I would tell you not only spelled the demise of the Japanese actions in the Pacific and led to their downfall four years later, but that it was also probably a prelude, a preview, a sneak peek at what was to happen when it came to this kind of over-the-horizon warfare with the missile warfare we're going to discuss a little bit during this episode today. Salvo competition is throw weight. The amount of iron, maybe even precision-guided iron, but not only precision-guided iron, because we know that Joseph Stalin, paraphrasing, said, quantity has a quality all its own. The Germans would discover during their prosecution of the conflict after Barbarossa entered Russia in 1941, that that had a very morbid quality all its own that would lead to their defeat by April 1945 in World War II. So the Center for Security and Budgetary Analysis, which I would commend all of my listeners to pay attention to, with a grain of salt, as I do with all of these kind of things, but nonetheless, they have some really good qualitative and quantitative analysis out there. They talk about salvo competition. Quote, the first step towards achieving this objective is to frame the challenge as a salvo competition between adversaries that each have mature capabilities to attack with hundreds and possibly thousands of guided weapons instead of a small number of ballistic missiles. End of quote. Now, mind you, it reads guided weapons, and it does read to the exclusion of ballistic missiles, because as most of us would know, and this is the way we're going to frame our discussion today, is that Ballistic missile defense and such, we do have those in THADs and various very low-density numbers of munitions capable of intercepting inbound ICBMs against the homeland, for instance. 
That is not quite the case for the hundreds of U.S. bases that are either naval or military planet-wide. They usually don't have those kind of either point defenses or area defenses. But nonetheless, it's outside the reach of what we're discussing today. So we're going to confine ourselves to salvo competition with less than ICBM and less than IRBM. Examples would be what we've been seeing in the Ukraine, what we've been seeing in the, with the Houthi rebels in Yemen, what we've been seeing probably for the last 20 years and the occasional conflicts that do occur where you have martial competitors lobbing stuff at each other. And let me tell you why the United States, as a global hegemon and not a regional hegemon, has an opening out-of-the-gate disadvantage in all of this is because... As a global hegemon with realistic, some would say unrealistic, constraints on the defense budget and the arms budget and the military budget and all of its associated verities in the NATO countries and such, it has to make sure that it is ready at any time on a planetary basis to service and address threats that are posed against it, either that it has intelligence on or seems to be surprised by. Which brings us to my conclusion as to why Russia and China, as regional hegemons, only seemingly concerned with, for the most part, their contiguous borders. When it comes to military power and hard power, they are able to concentrate, focus, and one could say obsess on layered defenses and all defenses, by the way, have offensive capabilities baked into them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be defenses because they wouldn't be able to service inbound targets if they didn't have that capability in the first place. Not only do these regional hegemons have the mud-to-space capability of ISR intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, whether air-breathing or not air-breathing, as far as the means by which they would detect things and cue on to things that are maybe inbound or prosecuting within the conflict zone that they happen to be on. But they have both been able to develop systems that allow them to prosecute inbound munitions. Now, let's tease this out a little bit and what this means. You have sensors, which are going to be radar modalities, could be ISR assets, could be very large... UAVs, could be smaller UAVs, could be swarms of them, could be localized, could be regional. They could be queued to certain areas because there's an expectation due to the acquisition of actionable intelligence that something is happening there. And as a result of the queuing, they are able to use that queuing in a broad field to maybe detect things within that span of time or area in which they would make a declaration. Now, what this means in prosecution terms is that queuing would tell you that from an intelligence standpoint, we're expecting inbound munitions in this area. So you would take sensor assets, focus them there, and then through the queuing, you would start to detect things. Now, detect is quite a bit different from declaration because detection is, well, we've got something out there. Declaration is, is it friendly? Is it a threat? Is it neutral? Is it an airline? Is it something that's not harmful if it happens to enter the airspace of a particular nation state? And here 
is where the real sophistication has to be in place in order for these nation states or allies and coalition states to prosecute these. You have to have a what the U.S. would call a battle command management system. You have to have a system that matches those sensors I just described to effectors, which would be the munitions themselves, in order to prosecute either inbound munitions or, in the case of a war against a country in which one is lobbying munitions at them, you are sending them in a rational way in which they're going to hit targets that you have in your target deck that are going to affect the conduct of the war on your opponent's part and reduce their capability to be militarily effective. What all that word salad means is that, is that to paraphrase Nathan Bedford Forrest from the American Civil War or the war between the states, you want to get there the fastest with the mostest. And what he means by fastest with the mostest in his very elegant 19th century argo is that I want to make sure that I select the munition from my available magazine that will most effectively and in the soonest fashion prosecute, service, neutralize, and destroy the target that it is, it, it is being sent against. That's all that means. What you find is that when you look at the West, they have been going through iteration after iteration after iteration of what the Russians refer to as a strike reconnaissance complex. Now, that is not a phraseology that's employed very often in the West, but I think it's the, most, I think it's the best descriptor of what one is trying to achieve in both the defensive and the offensive. In this case, we've just discussed sensors and effectors. We know what those are. The sensors, of course, are going to be the radars, the UAVs, that entire intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance complex that tells us what things are in place that can detect what, and we've organized it in a rational fashion to deliver the intelligence to us from which one can define actionable intelligence, which is a tiny portion of intelligence, that makes it so that one can use that to service targets that are either inbound or anticipated to be inbound, or registered targets in enemy territory that are on the ground, or in the case of hasty or deliberate, one would have a means by which, in a hasty situation, you can start to service targets as need be on a expeditious basis, because those aren't planned targets being hasty in the first place. I know some of my listeners may find all of this confusing. I would urge you, please, to go out and do some reading on your own, maybe listen to some YouTube videos you may enjoy with commentators who may be more eloquent than I am on this very subject. But let's do it and, and try to suss this out and, and, and discover what it is that makes sophisticated munitions delivery complexes work. For instance, if we go to uh, General Balch's memoirs from the end of World War II, member of the Wehrmacht, probably one of the most savvy and intelligent general officers to serve in the Wehrmacht at the time, they had a very sophisticated artillery marching barrage that even exceeded the capability of the USSR, where quite literally bulk in 1943, 44, and 45 could walk munitions over his troops who were advancing and time it in the correct fashion in which once those troops arrived at certain points, artillery would be lifted, the parabola would be advanced, 
and they would start striking in front of the friendly soldiers so that there would not be fratricide. So none of this sophistication is new, and what World War II brought to the sensor-effector mix and making it such that one could actually conduct combined arms warfare where you have all of these modalities in the air, on the ground, the logistical tales, all of that in this orchestrated and very elegant martial opera in which you would bring what Forrest called the firstest with the mostest and be effective with those munitions to service targets. As my listeners know, I'm not revealing any secret squirrel stuff here. All of this is accessible to everyone here. And what I'm about to say is sheer speculation on my part, and I would love for listeners within the classification purviews that we would allow in the common discourse that we have here in America, outside of the august halls of government facilities and MIC facilities, the Chinese and the Russians and some others take actual homeland defense very seriously. What we have when one examines the Chinese coast from an anti-access and access denial of their particular coastline, in this case, the coastline in front of which is the second and third island chains and the Philippines in the south all the way up to Korea and everything in between that is on the periphery of their their contiguous ocean. Now, the Chinese have developed, I won't call it impermeable, but a rather impressive barrier, a layered defense in which any munitions lobbed against their homeland from the Pacific Ocean in all of those countries that I just mentioned that are there, they have a means to service and prosecute those with a very sophisticated sensor and effector system. Now, I mentioned earlier that that may not be the case for United States facilities in the Pacific. Whatever hazard they are in, that is um, something to be examined. But let's suppose, and the Russians, by the way, have a very sophisticated defense on their eastern perimeter because of NATO since 1991, and the impressive NATO blob that has marched ever eastward in spite of bloviations to the contrary since 1991, leading inevitably and, to me, not surprisingly, to the conflict that we have in Ukraine today. I don't think Red Dawn or some kind of invasion can occur here in the United States, even if the United States were to find itself embroiled in a two-way, three-way, four-way civil war within the borders below Canada and above Mexico, and all of a sudden we've got 1860 to 1865 all over again, or, might I say, 1775 to 1783 all over again, which was simply a civil war divorce proceeding from London. So whatever the circumstances may be, that puts the United States in danger, whether it's this, this possible civil war that could occur, or maybe there are antagonists out there who decide that it is time to threaten the United States West Coast, for, in, for instance, with munitions, missiles, PGMs, whatever the case may be. Whatever that deliver, delivery system may be, less IRBMs and ICBMs. So let's suppose... In the improbable future, 5, 10, 15 years from now, this occurs, and the United States, the Pentagon, and the federal government has to mount a defense of the West Coast. You took every Patriot battery, every HIMARS, 
THAD, which isn't quite appropriate for defending against these less IRBMs and ICBMs, and they're in very low density as far as the number that we have on hand in the inventory. Took all of those, I'll bet we'd be lucky to be able to defend San Diego County, much less the entirety of the West Coast. Now, again, a few moments ago, I spoke about China, and China has invested heavily in having a fairly non-permeable, non-permissive environment for Western munitions to enter their country on their East Coast. Same may be said when I start to get into the Russian strike reconnaissance complex that we're going to talk about a little later on. When you look at these things, what you discover is that we simply don't have the means to defend ourselves against this in the coming salvo competition. Now, of course, this is a salvo competition against what I would categorize as an unlikely threat. Because if one were to posit that, oh, no, look, all of a sudden it's red dawn in the United States. And we've seen a number of movies and books and, and, and essays and articles in the Atlantic Council has talked about this where there's a veritable military invasion of the United States. I, I always hesitate to even think those are reality because imagine this. What strategic sea lift or airlift does China have or even Russia have in which they can establish a beachhead, a contested beachhead in the United States. They can capture that beachhead, keep it, spread that lodgement, use that as a point of debarkation for munitions, logistics, more troops, follow-on forces, that kind of thing. To me, it's, it's rather fanciful, and I think it's very science fiction-esque as far as that's happening. So I'm not even positing that there's going to be an invasion, but that doesn't mean that there can't be missile strikes on the American homeland proper or what we've discovered, for instance, with nuclear weapons and such. You got a Ford F-350 or F-450 and you're able to get into the United States somehow. Maybe even you can use a cargo container at the port of L.A. from which one can use that, or you can use a very large liquid propane or liquid natural gas ship as an explosive entity. I mean, any one or a number of these things could happen. Now, what would missile defense do for the things that I just delineated? Probably not much. But nonetheless, if the Department of Defense, if the D means anything in that moniker for that rather large organization, they haven't done much for the homeland. And I know there's a Department of Homeland Security, but then again, they haven't done much for homeland defense. Now, as you can imagine, this has a lot to do with salvo equations. And I promise you, I promise you, we're not doing math on air, so, so don't tune out just now. The salvo model of modern missile combat was first fully articulated in print by their primary developer. So at the Naval Postgraduate School, there was a professor, Captain Wayne P. Hughes, U.S. Navy, who retired in 1995, the product of Hughes' research into pulsed combat actions from the Second World War through the advent of the cruise missile age, the SALVO equations have since become a standard method of understanding cruise missile combat in the 21st century. In this case, when we're discussing cruise missiles, what we're talking about is missiles that you've seen in the movies probably that have wings, mostly subsonic, some supersonic, but mostly subsonic, and they're able to steer, and they're able to maneuver, and they're able to go wave top or high altitude or whatever the case may be. And the U.S. Navy has spent a lot of time on developing defenses against cruise missiles and on the utility of using cruise missiles as offensive weapons. 
Now, Hughes also intended the salvo equation to influence ship design, as his research and experience suggested that warship staying power in combat had decreased since the end of the Second World War. Mind you, we have no ships with armor in the fleet. Mind you, we have no United States aircraft carrier currently of the 13, is it 14? Let's call it 13 or 14, with the uh, entry of the USS Ford. Uh, They had five-inch guns on fleet aircraft carriers in World War II. There are no such munitions or protections on ours. There are phalanxes, which are the 20-millimeter close-in support systems that put up a wall of lead. They do have those, and, of course, short-range missile defenses, things like that, but nothing like a 5-inch gun or the gunnery that we had discussed earlier in this episode. The combination of advances in anti-ship cruise missile technology and the perception that U.S. warships have become less survivable caused some to question the post-1991 U.S. Navy force structure of fewer but larger, more capable warships as a viable construct for future warfare. Now there's been three editions of Hughes' book, which I highly recommend, called Fleet Tactics from 1986 to 2018, that developed these theories and popularized them to a wider audience. Mind you, when I'm talking about salvo competition, yes, I am speaking from a naval perspective for this small example, but the naval perspective is the one that's the most well-sussed out here in the halls of what we would call open source intelligence and open discussion where we're not isolated from discussing things that we can't in an unclassified space. And that's where we are right now. So while there has been subsequent research into the mathematics of the Salvo equations, the given values for defense capability of individuals or groups of ships has not received similar scrutiny. The modeling for ships' defensive capabilities effectively stopped in 1994 without the addition of subsequent cruise missile combat in follow-on versions of the fleet tactics series, as you will note if you read the last two editions. Now, Hughes' logic, he derived his salvo equations from multiple sources. These included the World War I Lancaster equations that measured the potential power of artillery barrages in combat and his own models. And as stated by Hughes, the purpose of the salvo equation was, quote, to write a simple mathematical model with which to make exploratory computations that describes the offensive power of the ships armed with anti-ship cruise missiles and the defensive power of ships defending against the ASCAMs. The offensive power of the anti-ship cruise missile is central to Hughes' thesis. He described it as one where, quote, the possibility now exists that the striking power of a single unit armed with surface-to-surface anti-ship cruise missiles, ASCAMs, may be strong enough to put several enemy units out of action with profound tactical consequences. Now, mind you, when he's writing in the 1990s, hypersonic munitions and and the like aren't even in consideration because they were simply figments of one's martial imagination at the time. That's not the case now in the 21st century, so those equations do have to be updated for that very thing. But nonetheless, what we also have is that he mentions sinking a ship. You don't have to sink a carrier. All you have to do is take one screw out of the two screws it has or put a five-degree list on it, and it can't conduct air operations, whether that would be launching or retrieval. It can't do it. So it becomes a very expensive, anachronistic modality floating in the middle of the ocean that is very vulnerable, despite the armada and flotilla that is surrounding it to protect it, 
and it simply becomes an extraordinarily expensive target. A slight excursion on my excursions episode. I am not a fan of man-tank warfare, and I think man-tanks are over, and I think that Azerbaijan and Armenia have proved that out. I think that the Ukrainian-Russian conflict has proved that out. And I also feel the same way about the aircraft carrier. I think the aircraft carrier is a very expensive anachronism that has seen its day. And like I mentioned earlier in the episode, on December 10th, 1941, we will discover, I'm forecasting, not predicting, we will discover that all of this capital investment and national treasure into aircraft carriers was for naught as all the expensive treasury expen- uh, expenditure on battleships, large warships and such up until 1941 were thought to be the navalist wave of the future, but it turns out that they weren't. The United States Navy is is in, the, in an existential hazard for a variety of reasons, all of which I won't cover in this particular episode because it would take me several episodes to cover everything, everything from bad training, the corruption of professional military education, the emphasis on things that have nothing to do with war fighting, the construction of ships that seem to have no concept of operations or concept employment in the concepts and requirements stage of development even entertained or contemplated and seem to be put out there and they're just hoping against hope that these will work despite the fact that they didn't war game them against potential threats that were just over the horizon five to ten years from now. My forecast is quite simple. If there is a cross-strait invasion by the Chinese against Taiwan, whether they win or not, the U.S. Navy will lose ships, the U.S. Air Force will lose aircraft, and that seems to be not unusual when it comes to the United States prosecution of warfare. The first year, if it lasts that long, of that war will not go well for the West. So, with that dark cloud hanging over your head as far as our prospects of what's going to happen in the Pacific, let's cross the globe and check out what's happening in Russia and the Ukraine. I'd mentioned in previous episodes about Azerbaijan and Armenia fighting each other in the fall of 2020, and the way I think I've seen a paradigm change, a revolution in military affairs prove out there, and I would urge you all to look what happened there in the fall of 2020 with Russian arms and the way they were able to vanquish their enemies, as it were in this case, with an alliance through the use of sophisticated ISR in conjunction with UAVs and pre-conflict force engagements and things like that that occurred. This kind of hybrid and gray zone warfare is what's going to be the future of warfare, whether we like it or not. Now, what we also discover, as I mentioned earlier, with Grau's Russian Strike Reconnaissance Complex paper in which he talks about how they come of age, is that I would urge all of you to take a look at that document if you get a chance. I wish there was a way on this website. Maybe sometime in the future I'll be able to have a website that's related to this podcast in which I can put up my book recommendations and these PDFs that I find like Lester Grau's and things like that. So you can do a deep dive into this and find out for yourself and see if you can even find more compelling evidence why this is either so or not, and then maybe we could have that as a future discussion. 
So again, I draw this from Changing Character of War Center, Pembroke College, University of Oxford, The Russian Reconnaissance Fire Complex Comes of Age by Grau and Bartles, published in May of 2018. Strongly recommend you read this. Now, in a February 2017 edition of Army Digest, in this case, it is the Russian Army Digest, there's an interesting paragraph there because the Russians envision that modern maneuver will not be not be a repeat of World War II with massed armies dug in shoulder to shoulder stretching over hundreds of thousands of miles. Rather, it will be a series of fast-moving strike maneuver fights with open flanks secured by fire, strong points, and counterattack forces. Quote, a new method is the employment of combined arms tactical groups, each consisting of one or two battalions, each fighting on separate axes. Alongside the offensive, the combined arms formation may conduct defensive actions primarily by delaying and blocking actions as well as by conducting a dispersed defense utilizing brigade subunits, what we in the West would call task forces, maybe even BCTs, brigade combat teams or battalion combat teams. The dispersed defense can consist of platoon strong points combined with minefield obstacles and a pre-planned system of artillery fires. Artillery will be attached to the combined arms subunits or will provide artillery support under the direction of the senior commanders, end of quote. Because even today in the 21st century, unlike the West, which is air-centric as far as the center of gravity and the prosecution of large conflict at the operational and strategic level, artillery still serves as the center of gravity for Russian force employment. And a quick sidebar here. Having been raised and spent almost a quarter century in uniform in the United States Army, what I find is that there is almost a slapdash or ill-informed dismissal of Russian arms and Russian arms effectiveness. I think, of course, when all of us look at what happened with Russian arms from 1943 to 1945 and the absolute crushing of the Wehrmacht in parts of Europe and the kind of conflict uh, machine evolution that we saw, the revolutions in military affairs that occurred as a result of what the Russians were able to pull off at the time. When we look at the post-World War II environment, we were always taught this kind of what I consider being a pretty idiotic bias, say, oh, the, the Soviet doctrine, the Soviet way of war and stuff, it's, it just doesn't work. It's centrally planned. It doesn't, doesn't pan out very well and isn't very successful. Mind you, I would, I would, while we haven't seen until this special military operation in the Ukraine, Russian forces at work against their enemies and large Russian formations. And I'm pretty impressed by what I've seen in the Ukraine in the last 24 months as far as the Russian way of war. One can look at Korea, and if you look at 1951 when the Chinese invaded using Soviet doctrine, for 18 months they bested U.S. arms, and in this case U.N. arms, because it was an allied and coalition force of Western nations that went in there to stop the communist offensive on the North Korean peninsula. I would also call your attention to Africa from 1983 to 1987, and Cuban arms, which used Soviet doctrine and Russian doctrine to do what they did, and they gave some very sophisticated nation-states in Africa and allies and coalitions in the West a run for their money through the prosecution of those very wars using Soviet tactics. And one thing that you will find with Soviet and tactics and, and Russian tactical, maybe we can even call it Tactics, techniques, and procedure evolution and improvements that we've seen over the past three decades, 
it's not dead, and there's a way in which if these near-peer and peer conflicts are entered into, we would do ourselves a severe disservice in the West to underestimate the veracity, efficacy, and effectiveness of Soviet arms, conflict, so, Soviet arms development and doctrine and what it's morphed into in Russian doctrine and what has bled into Chinese doctrine because there are things to pay attention to. Back to Grau's document, he does a really good sort of data dump of what are some of the conclusions of this new Russian strike reconnaissance complex. And he has a list here, and I want to I draw from this list. And what it says is, analysis of limited wars, the Soviet war in Afghanistan, combat in Chechnya, the fighting in Syria. He mentions those, but of course we also know that there's the Russian combat because of when he wrote this, he wasn't aware of the combat that occurred in the Armenian-Azerbaijan-Nagorno-Karabakh debacle in the fall of 2020. And of course he doesn't mention what happened in Ossetia in 2008 and such, but he has an interesting list here. And what he's saying is required that new type artillery tactical formations be capable of the following things. Conducting highly maneuverable combat with motorized rifle and tank subunits, complete multi-kilometer combined road marches, conduct river crossings, inflicting fire destruction of enemy subunits, destroying enemy targets through direct and indirect fire, annihilating tactical precision guided munitions, suppressing and destroying command posts, and he goes on, conducting counter-battery fire, all of these things. And all of these things, by the way, you will find that if you go to Fort Sill and you go to the artillery school, you'll get a lot of head nods north and south who will say, gay and verily, yeah, this, this is exactly what we need to do. Well, at least what we have here, and again, I think it's because of Russia's advantage as a regional hegemon instead of a global hegemon where they can devote the resources and limited budget that they have because Russia, of course, has maybe, I'd, I'd say, one-tenth, if not less, of the budget of the United States that it puts into defense and the military. Now, they, they seem to be using their money well, as demonstrated in the Ukraine. If you're paying attention, especially if you're listening to Colonel Douglas McGregor, who I think is probably one of the more sober, savvy, and militarily informed observers of the conflict that's going on over there, and by extension, the conflict that has emerged after October 7th between Gaza and Israel, and the rifts and the rippling of conflict that is causing in the Middle East. I'd mentioned earlier that band of conflict from the western border of Mali all the way to India and Pakistan. That is starting to expand, of course, because of the October 7th events and the Israeli invasion and an investment, and I use that in, in military parlance, of Gaza and greater targets that they're finding in Syria and, and places like that. You'll find that that east-west band of that was on fire that I described earlier, that is starting to morph north and south, more so to the north, and it's starting to envelop a large part of the world in that area. The U.S. Navy a while back had what I thought was a really silly notion. It's something that they called distributed lethality. And in distributed lethality, what they said is we have all these ships out there with these effectors, and we can use these effectors to service targets that we find, either through Aegis or the spy radar systems or maybe over the target or mud to space, maybe something air-breathing, something non-air-breathing as far as 
the actual intelligence to actually target something. You'll note that it said distributed lethality, but didn't say distributed targeting because they didn't take effectors into, into account. And this continues in the West, and I would love to be disabused of the notion that we are still in a huge mess when it comes to battle command management systems. By the way, B BMCS happens to be one of the pursuits that the U.S. Air Force and others are trying to find an integrated, factored firing solution so that effectors and sensors are married to each other to do what I refer to as Forrester's imperative, firstest with the mostest. We're still having incredible difficulties in making that system reality. And I'm here to tell you that as far as I'm concerned, from my observations, I think the Russians may have cracked the code. Does that mean they have a perfect system? Of course it doesn't. Does it mean they have a more effective system in the West? I would suggest that they do. And I want to pull another quote here from the paper by Grau. Quote, the regional conflicts of the 21st century have confirmed Russian analytical thinking that highly maneuverable enemy armored vehicles should be engaged with high precision munitions, whereas high explosive fragmentation and cluster rounds can be used for engaging enemy personnel and dug in weapons and when attacking objectives using various kinds of conventional barrage fire. End of quote. By the way, of course, we think this and we have a brilliant weapon system. One of the the best infantry weapon systems that's been developed in the past 50 years by the name of the Javelin, which is a... Uh, a, a tremendous system that can not only engage on occasion in direct fire if necessary, but that's not how you want to use it, but indirect fire so that if something is dug in behind what we would refer to as a reverse military slope where you actually can't see them, but you know where they are, it flies on such a high parabola that it will hit them from the sky. Also, we noticed that the Javelin was designed so that it would hit the thinnest skin of any armored vehicle out there or an infantry fighting vehicle, AFE, whatever the case may be, which is going to be the rooftop elements or the top elements of that armored infrastructure. Quote, Russian artillery units will expend far more conventional rounds than expensive high-precision rounds. Massed conventional artillery fires achieve a mathematically determined guarantee of desired target destruction while producing psychic terror, end quote. Wow. Yes, that is the case. Again, Stalin, quantity has a quality all its own. High precision rounds will be used in reconnaissance strike systems, but there will be a choice between high precision and conventional rounds, end of quote. And of course, that choice is because conventional rounds are so much more inexpensive. And in the salvo competition that we are going to encounter in the future with near-peer and peer competitors, the simpler weapon systems, the cheaper weapon systems will indeed have a quality all their own. If you concentrate all of your weapons development on these exquisite, extraordinarily expensive, very capable systems and very few numbers, it will not end well. Exhibit A would be the Tiger tank during World War II. One can say that during World War II, when it came to armored operations, and of course everybody on this podcast knows I considered tanks to be in anachronism now, but it doesn't mean that I can't appreciate the efficacy and effectiveness of German arms when it came to the employment of tanks during World War II. Extraordinary tanks, even though I happen to think that the Russian T-34 was probably the best tank ever produced during that entire conflict, and that while the German tanks were well-built, I don't think that they could ever match the sheer effectiveness and quantity of the T-34s. Nonetheless, what about putting German crews best on planet Earth at the time, German armor crews in T-34s? Wow, that would have been something to see. But nonetheless, what we discover is that 
there is a match of the talent stacks that you have in your human capital matched up to the weapon systems themselves. But it doesn't mean that you have to invest primarily and only in exquisite weapon systems at the expense of things that are simpler. I would, I would recommend that all of my listeners, if you get a chance and you enjoy science fiction, there's a short story called Superiority written in the 1950s by Arthur C. Clarke in which he writes about these exquisite, expensive weapons that are being employed during this galactic war against countries that don't have that sophistication. But those countries are using more simple weapon sets and such. And, of course, who prevails in the end? This is speculative fiction. The simpler weapons, because the more sophisticated weapons end up not working as well in quantity in force. I wanted to pull one additional quote from Grau's magisterial examination. Quote, the Russian Federation is making great efforts to develop a robust command and control and communications and computer intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. Man, that's a mouthful. We call it C4 ISR. To quickly direct various types of munitions or more simply stated, the Russians are developing fast and reliable means to put steel on target. Although UAVs are an important part of this capability, UAVs only complement the reconnaissance strike system. And the RYS is by no means solely reliant upon them. The Russian Federation has made great efforts to incorporate UAV capabilities, but it is also incorporating other sensors, such as ground-based radar and communication systems, to build a unified reconnaissance strike system. The difficulties of fielding a unified ROS are likely more related to interfacing various technologies and ensuring rapid and reliable communications. In practice, ROS is being implemented through the Stretlitz Reconnaissance Command and Control and Communication Systems. If Strelitz Strelitz truly functions as described, the Russian armed forces will need only one system to rapidly task fires at all level of battle, from frontline artillery to deep strike aviation through rear area missile strikes, truly fielding a unified Russian reconnaissance system. End of quote. I want to draw out a phraseology in there that if I burn anything into your brain my loyal listeners, of what you've listened to after I bloviated now for almost an hour is that they're trying to have one system to rapidly task fires at all levels of battle. I repeat, one system to rapidly task fires at all levels of battle. This is what will win, maybe contribute to the win, among a variety of factors the near-peer and peer competition that we're all going to face in the future, whether we like it or not. And remember, historically, all wars are won by the least incompetent force, and that all wars are predicted to be over in two weeks, and we all know that won't be the case. I am loath to make these forecasts, and I am loath to be so pessimistic about the forces of the West. But we've made our own bed and we built our own nest. And artillery isn't the king of the battlefield. Murphy's Law is. All hail Murphy Rex. Thanks for listening. I'd love to hear from you. If you happen to want to correspond with me, that would be cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. Whatever your vendor is, Spotify, Amazon, Audible, whatever the case may be, I would be much obliged if you left a review on there and uh, let folks know about this podcast, what you think, 
and uh, pass it on to your friends. This is Bill, out.